do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I can shoot a partridge with a single cartridge. I can get a sparrow with a bow and arrow. I can live on bread and cheese. And only on that? Yeah. So can a rat. Any note you can sing, I can sing higher. I can sing any note higher than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. How do you go that high? I'm a girl. Anything you can buy, I can buy cheaper. I can buy anything cheaper than you. Fifty cents. Forty cents. Thirty cents. Twenty cents. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can say, I can say softer. I can say anything softer than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. I can eat a Snicker faster than a Flicker. I can eat it quicker and get even thicker. I can open any safe. Without getting caught? Sure. That's what I thought, you crook. Any note you can sing, I can sing longer. I can sing any note longer than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. No, you can't. In my shirt, in your vest, in my shoes, in your hat. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can say, I can say faster. I can say anything faster than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. Yes, I can. I can jump a hurdle. I can wear a girdle. I can knit a sweater. I can fill it better. I can do most anything. Can you make a pie? No. Neither can I. Anything you can sing, I can sing sweeter. I can sing anything sweeter than you. <clears throat> no, you can't. Oh, yes, I can. No, you can't. Oh, the mighty Niagara, harnessed to giant generators, its energy racing along 400 miles of copper wire just to heat our toaster. All we have to do is wait. Don't we have to plug it in? <laughs> Man, I've been there. I'm not Mr. Fix-It. Uh, well, I have really had a good time uh, studying humility with you guys because uh, your media team is is so awesome here and um, it's kind of neat coming here to be able to watch the streaming video of what you guys have been studying over the last couple weeks and uh, 
learning about humility. And I was really kind of intrigued when I got the call from Dad, and he said, I want you to come and, and talk about humility, because humility is always kind of a subject that confused me a little bit. Because I know that in the Bible, Jesus said, I stiff-arm the proud, but I give grace to the humble. So I thought, well, you know, obviously humility is something important, and, and we've been learning about it over the last couple of weeks. But I didn't really know how I would evaluate myself on a humility scale. You know, a lot of times when I get the opportunity to talk to folks like you, I already kind of know what I'm going to say, and I already kind of know how I feel about something. But humility was something I really didn't know how I felt about. I didn't know how I would evaluate myself, and so I, I decided, and I mentally drew a line. Uh, this is the mental line which I drew. <laughs> <laughs> that Lance helped me draw in reality here. Uh, and I said, okay, if I was to look at humility this way, that this over here is humility, and this over here is not being humble, and I had to evaluate myself, where would I stand? I would come here if I would say, I know I'm a humble person, and I feel like I've, you know, I've met that criteria, but I would stand over here if I said, I'm not humble, or I don't know. And what I found out was I didn't know. And I almost didn't want to know. Uh, I don't know if you can sort of relate to this, but I kind of got into this sort of mental word game. So if I say I'm humble, does that make me arrogant? And if, uh, if I'm arrogant, then, no, wait a minute, this is really confusing. So I need to be humble, but I'm not allowed to know whether I'm humble because if I wear a humility badge, they're going to take it away from me because I'm wearing it around, right? So anyway, I got into this sort of, and then what I decided was, I said, you know, if I have to decide which side of the line I'm on, I know who needs to make that decision for me. People that know me, right? Because I'm not in any position to make the decision whether I'm a humble person. So ask the people that I work with, ask my wife, ask my kid. They can tell you whether I'm a humble person, right? I mean, if somebody were to come up to you and say, now, uh, would you consider yourself a humble person? I'm not sure, but would you not do something similar and say, well, I don't really know. You ask the guys I work with or ask my family because I don't, I don't really know. But the problem with all of that is, as you've been hearing over the last couple weeks, we need to know whether we're humble. It's important that we know whether we're humble because that is something that Jesus expects from every Christ follower. It's something very important for a Christ follower because it's how, a lot of how we demonstrate Jesus Christ. So it is important for you to know which side of this line you are on. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How do you know which side of the line you're on? And unfortunately, I want to just kind of cut out some misconceptions right out of the starting gate. Because when you talk about humility tonight, I don't know if you've already kind of thought about this in your head. There are some negative things that people think about when they think about humility. And I just want to get those out in the open and dealt with. Okay, a lot of people think that being on this side of the line, being on the humble side of the line, is all about self-deprivation. Okay, It's about having a bad life. It's about not having stuff. It's about not having goals. It's about just constantly being on the unhappy side of life. If if I'm unhappy, then I must be humble. A lot of people think that being on the humility side of the line is about being a doormat. Anybody, can you relate to that? You think being humble means I let people walk all over me. But that's not what being humble is about. But I just wanted to start off by talking about the fact that you may think doormat. That may be the first thing that comes into your mind. You may think, I'm the person who doesn't get to set goals. That may be what humility is for me. And I want to just tell you tonight, just to start this whole thing off, you can be on this side of the line and not be a doormat, and you can be on this side of the line and not live a terrible life. 
Okay, so we're gonna, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. How to be on that side of the line, know you're on that side of the line, and live the kind of life that Jesus wants you to live. But I've got to tell you, we're going to study tonight the negative. Okay, and that's a lot of what we hear in the Bible. You know, we study the story that tells us how not to do things. You know, my wife likes to watch that show sometimes, What Not to Wear. And you watch that show, and they pull you into a closet, and you put on your clothes, and they say, no, that's the most terrible thing I've ever seen anybody ever wear in my entire life. We're going to make you go shopping and get new clothes. A lot of times, the Bible gives a story of what you don't do, how you get to the position of where you need to be by looking at this and saying, this is not what we're going to do. So this is what we're looking at this morning. And I want to start off this evening. I want to start off by asking this question. Everybody in the room, it's just you and me. Let's just uh, have a little fun with this. Who hates people? Uh, sorry, we're not supposed to hate. Who supremely dislikes people that cut in line? <laughs> do you? Do you? I do. I do. I got to tell you what. I, uh, I like to eat at McDonald's for breakfast in the morning sometimes. And I don't know if you guys have these in Wichita yet, but we have them all over Oklahoma. They have these two-lane McDonald's drive throughs okay? So here's the deal. You get two of those little order windows, right, where you go up to the window and it sounds like Charlie Brown. They say, bah, 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 and you say, I'd like a large Coke, please, and an Egg McMuffin. But anyway, you go through that. There's two of those, but there's only one window where you get your food. So there's an order to things. There's a flow to things. And believe me, I understand the order and the flow. I do this a lot. So I know when I, when I drive up there, who's next at the food window. <laughs> okay? So I went up there the other day, and I see this guy, and I just knew instinctively, this guy's going to cut in line because I see him revving that truck up. And I had just finished ordering, and I thought, you know, there's no way this guy gets in front of me because I just ordered, and I'm going to get up there in that window faster than he can. And I know what he had to have said was, I'd like an ice water and a plastic cup, please. And keeps on going, you know, because he didn't have much time to order. And he cut right in line, and I tell you what, man, I was so unhappy, and I thought, this is not cool. We're going to talk today about somebody who cut in line and how Jesus handled that. But I got to tell you, when I was researching this, I found some interesting stories. You might find this a little interesting um, about cutting in line. Some of you may know this, some of you may not. Uh, Beijing, uh, where we're getting ready to have the Olympics, is sponsoring uh, the 11th of every month is voluntarily wait in line day. So uh, the issue was they were concerned about people standing in line and, and, and not cutting in line. So they said, for you know, up until the Olympics comes, every month on the 11th, we're all going to voluntarily wait in line. I mean, what, what is the reason for that? Well, the reason was the fear of cutting in line. But I tell you, this, I, I hope you'll, you'll uh, grant me just the permission to read this to you because I just thought this was hilarious. And it speaks to me about what happens to me when I try to cut in line. Uh, I hope nobody will take this as, a, as an offense towards Senator Edwards because I... I have uh, nothing to say, good or bad, there. But Senator Edwards had said a few slightly negative things on the campaign trail about Walmart. Um, I'm not even sure what all the history is there, but he just has some some not so happy things about Walmart. And so, under that un- under that understanding, I'd like to read you this. This is a press release from Walmart, November 16, 2006, and it says, "Just like, by the way, November 16, 2006. This is release time for the PlayStation 3. A little more background there." Just like the millions of Americans who turned to their neighborhood Walmart for their holiday shopping needs, Walmart announced today that former Senator John Edwards is seeking to be one of the first to get a Sony PlayStation 3, one of the most coveted holiday gift items this Christmas season. 
Yesterday, a staff person for former Senator Edwards contacted a Walmart electronics manager in Raleigh, North Carolina, to obtain a Sony PlayStation 3 on behalf of the senator's family. Later that night, Senator Edwards reportedly retold a homespun story to participants of a United Food and Commercial Workers uh, Union about how his son had chided a fellow student for purchasing shoes at Walmart. And this is their response. Walmart welcomes Senator Edwards to visit his local Walmart store and explore the extensive line of home electronics as well as the wide array of apparel for men and boys. The company noted that the PlayStation 3 is an extremely popular item this Christmas season, and while the rest of America's working families are waiting patiently in line, Senator Edwards wants to cut to the front. While we cannot guarantee that Senator Edwards will be among one of the first to obtain a PlayStation 3, we are certain that Senator Edwards will be able to find great gifts for everyone on his Christmas list, many at Walmart's rollback prices. (laughs) Busted! Oh, man, have you ever been busted for cutting in line? Oh, it's a bad feeling. Oh, man. Uh, And that is exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about a couple guys who got busted for cutting in line. But I need to give you a little bit of background. We're talking about a couple of Jesus' disciples today. Now, keep this in mind. The disciples were guys that came to Jesus to follow him. They were Christ followers like you and I are. They bleed red just like you and I do. They didn't have all of the perspective of what we know about Jesus and what was going to happen with Jesus and why Jesus was here on earth. And they came to Jesus with baggage and misconceptions just like everybody in this room. We all come to Jesus with a little bit of our own viewpoint and our own understanding and sometimes it clouds the issue and that's what happened here. And we're starting to get kind of late in Jesus' ministry in this story. And what's starting to happen, if you watch, is there's starting to be a little bit of internal infighting from the disciples. And what's it over? Who's going to sit where at the cabinet meetings when we go into the new kingdom? Right? Because the issue is, who's going to be most important? And I think, I, I, I don't know this because it's not spelled out in the Bible, but if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a little bit of conjecture here. I think a lot of the reason why this was a big issue was because the disciples were used to the way authority worked here. And the way authority worked here is you have one guy in charge, and then there's a couple guys underneath that guy who are in charge of people below them. And then there's a few more people below them, and they manage everybody down the scale. And then there's several guys, and then there's a bunch of guys. It was like a pyramid of authority. And I think the disciples had always kind of figured that they were going to be on different levels. And I think they were looking around at each other thinking, who's going to be my boss, and who am I going to have to answer to? If you look, I'm going to just brush over this really quickly, but back in Mark 9.33, actually I'm just going to uh, brush over this. It says, Jesus uh, and his disciples arrived in Capernaum. Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one was the greatest. Now watch this response. It's going to be a lot like what we learned today. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Okay, so you already know the disciples are really kind of fighting with each other about who's going to be first. But Jesus is not a a God of secrets. And what he did was he finally said to the guys, look, if this is such a big deal to you, I'm going to tell you what your position is going to be in the kingdom. And that happens in Matthew 19, 28. He says, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. 
But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Okay, so this, this should have settled it, right? I mean, this is pretty much it. Jesus just said, here's what you guys got. You've got equal footing. You guys are all going to be, you know, judging uh, a tribe of Israel. There's going to be 12 of you. You guys are going to be um, uh, basically reporting to him. So there's an there's a evenness of the playing field. But to James and John, who are going to be our key players here in a second, negotiations had just started. <laughs> that was a baseline. Now, it's, now, it's, now there's some negotiation room. And I know we're just kind of going at breakneck pace here through some scripture, but I want you to see the, the order of the way things lay out here. When we get to Matthew twenty seventeen, Jesus is getting really close to being crucified. And it is imperatively important that he explain to his disciples exactly what's getting ready to happen to him. You know, they hadn't really clued in on it yet. And Jesus is telling them in no uncertain terms exactly what's going to happen. If you look in Matthew twenty seventeen. He says, as, uh, it says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die, and they will hand him over to the Romans to be flogged, uh, mocked with a, uh, excuse me, mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Okay, so Jesus says, he tells them what's going to happen. He says, uh, they're going to they're gonna crucify me. He says, when it's going to happen. He says, when we get to Jerusalem. He tells them who's going to do it. There's no questions at this point about what's going to happen because Jesus has just laid it all out there. But do you, do you not find it interesting that sometimes uh, people pick the weirdest times to ask the weirdest things? Jesus just said, I'm getting ready to die. And you just want to go, man, if that was me, I'd be sitting there like this going, man, this is the worst thing I have ever heard in my entire life. But I want you to see what happens next. It's the weirdest thing. You will not believe this. Look uh, with us in Matthew um, 20, 20 through 24. Here's our story. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right, the other on your left. Is that not the weirdest time in the world to ask a question like that? I mean, seriously. Jesus just said, I'm getting ready to die. And they say, by the way, we have a favor to ask you. Can we be the top dogs in the kingdom? Because when you told us the other day that we were all going to be on a level playing field, that wasn't good enough. What are the guys doing? They're starting to play the angles, right? They're starting to figure out a way they can cut corners. They're cutting in line. And you say, well, Jonathan, it sounds to me a whole lot more like it's mom here. Mom's, mom's bringing the uh, disciples to Jesus and, and asking, you know, can my son sit on, on either hand? Let me tell you what, mom might have had an agenda here of some sort. She might have wanted the best for her kids. She might have wanted them close to Jesus. But mom was getting used. She was being used. If you look uh, over in Mark, the other account of the story is told as though the disciples were coming up and asking the question. Because what had happened was, it was the disciples who came and asked the question, and they had used their mom to ask it. Okay, and that's a really difficult thing to watch. But when you look at that, just keep in mind, we're going to get there in just a second, that James and John were kind of torquing the circumstances, twisting them to fit what they needed them to fit to get to where they wanted to get. Uh, when, uh, when we look at this, uh, a lot of times we say, well... Uh, uh, excuse me, let me go back. The line, I, I want to make sure I, I make this really clear. 
The line is the disciples. The disciples are all going towards the same goal. And these guys are cutting in line. What, what is it that bothers us about people that cut in line? I mean, just give, giving you an example here. If you're sitting in, the, in Townie Small and you're, at Annie, you're looking at Annie Ann's, Annie Ann's always has a line for pretzels, you know? But you're sitting there and you're looking at Annie Ann's. There's nobody in line, nobody waiting. Somebody walks up and gets a pretzel. Does that bother you? Doesn't bother me. But say there's eight people in line or nine people in line or ten people in line and somebody tries to go up to the front and butt in in front of everybody else. Then we have a problem. Why? Because that's opportunism. That's opportunism. What is opportunism? Let me give you just a real quick definition. Opportunism is when you slant the playing field in your direction and circumstances are slanted in your direction at the expense of others. You want to achieve success or you want to achieve something and you slant the playing field in your direction at the expense of someone else. That's what's the difference between going up to a line when there's nobody there and getting something and going when there's a bunch of people there. It's because it's at somebody else's expense. That's, what, that's where the rub lies. There's some sort of uh, lack of understanding of equality. There's some sort of lack of understanding of an even playing field that says, look, I'm going to slant this playing field and I'm going to get what I want and that's just the way it's going to be. So opportunism, uh, again, is about slanting the playing field at somebody else's expense. Why do people do that? I mean, seriously. I just, you know, I look at sometimes when people, when people try to cut corners or cheat, especially in the corporate world, and a lot of times I just sit back and I wonder, why in the world are they doing that? It doesn't make any sense to me. Let me tell you, 90% of the time, what drives people to be opportunistic in their life and what drives people to cut corners and try to slant the playing field in their direction is because they're afraid. Fear is what drives that. Fear is what drives that need to slant the playing field. You say, well, well what, what do you mean by that? Well, a lot of times it's fear of failure. You know, how many times have we seen somebody slant the playing field because they're afraid of failing? About maybe being labeled with failure. There's nothing worse than being labeled with failure. Or about letting somebody down. I don't want to let somebody down. Is that not why we see kids that cheat in school sometimes? Because they're afraid they're going to fail. They're afraid they're going to let somebody down. They're afraid they're going to get labeled with failure. Have you ever been afraid of that? It's rough. And a lot of times that fear of failure will push you into trying to cut corners and get a leg up and get ahead and be opportunistic. Sometimes it's the fear of sabotage. And you say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And at first I didn't think it did either. But it's interesting that so many times we get into this mindset of the, play, the, the playing field is already in somebody else's direction, right? Everybody else is trying to get mine, and, and, the, and the, the playing field is already slanted in that direction. I've got to come back and slant it back in this direction just so that I can make sure that I'm not being taken advantage of. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever gone into work and thought, everything is already playing into this guy's hands, but I, I've, got to, I've got to take something back. I've got to arrange the circumstances so everything's on an equal playing field. And at the same time, what you're doing is the same thing. Trying to get a leg up. Trying to get in there. Trying to change circumstances a little bit. What do we know about opportunists? One thing we do know, they're always looking for leverage. An opportunist is always looking for the next angle. Always looking for leverage. That's exactly what happened with James and John. James and John used their mom because, as best we understand, their mom was Joseph's sister. Joseph, the, the, heaven, the uh, earthly father of Jesus. And so they said, we can play the family angle. Have you ever known somebody who likes to play the family angle? You know? You are up for a promotion, but the boss's sister's cousin's wife's second nephew gets the job. Why? Because of the family angle. 
Oh man, that is just hard to deal with, the family angle. What about the other angle they played? If you read, and I encourage you to, my time is running short, I'm not going to get there yet, that if you read the other account, the disciples come to Jesus with this weird sort of question. They say, we would like you to grant us a favor. They're waiting for like a blanket approval, right? I'm a parent, and I understand if my little girl comes up to me and says, I want you to do something for me, but I'm not going to tell you what it is until you say yes. I say no, unless it's my birthday. (laughs) Because you don't know what they're asking. They played the angle of kind of manipulating the circumstances. If I can get a blanket approval from Jesus on what I want, then I can kind of sneak this in under the radar. They're looking for leverage. The other thing is they'll never be satisfied. They're going to be continually in a cycle of grasping for the next leg up, the next opportunity to get in a little bit of an advantage. I don't have the opportunity to read all about it uh, today, but I wish, uh, if you don't know the story, it's worth reading because it's very, very important to this whole idea. There's a story in in the Old Testament of two guys named Jacob and Esau. They're brothers. Esau has a lot of things coming to him because he's the oldest in his family, but Jacob starts to try to uh, torque the, the circumstances, tweak the circumstances, try to order things in a way where he can get what it is that he wants. And he gets family involved. And before you know it, you get to this story where he's having to be deceptive over and over and over and over again just to facilitate this getting ahead. Listen, when you see somebody who's opportunistic, you're going to watch them continually look for that next leg up because it's a cycle. You get, you get to uh, the, uh, remember we talked about the fear of, uh, the fear that drives uh, you to, to be an opportunist. 99% of the time that fear can all, be, can all be drawn in one big circle called insecurity. And that's why this pattern emerges. You get one leg up, you get to this place and you're insecure there. So you take another leg up. You find a new level to get to, and you're insecure there. So you play a new angle, and you cut a new corner, and now you're at a next level. But you're insecure there, because insecurity will follow you wherever you go. And that's, that's what these guys were finding out. I think James and John were insecure. Being on a level playing field with the other disciples wasn't going to be good enough, because they were still going to be insecure at that level. The only thing they thought would help their insecurity was to be second in command. What does Jesus say? I I want us to look at Jesus' response because this is going to tell us about this line. This is going to tell us about true humility. If you look back at Matthew 20, 22 through 28, it says, But Jesus answered by saying to them, You don't even know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Jesus told them, You will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now what is Jesus saying? Jesus starts off by saying, first of all, you don't know what you're asking. But what he says really helps us deal with the idea of true humility in this day and age in which we live. What is so hard about deciding not to play angles and not to cut corners in this world in which we live is that it looks like it works. Can anybody identify with that? You see the guys that cheat their way up the ladder at work? 
they're cutting corners, they're doing stuff they ought not to be doing, and they're getting there, and they're staying there, and nobody's calling them on it. And it's really rough to see them make it up the ladder, and they stay there. And we say, it doesn't seem fair. It works here, and it's not supposed to, if, if I'm not supposed to do this, then I don't understand. Why does it work here? And Jesus said, look, here, here's the deal. There's two economies at play. There's two different economies at play. He said, there's, there's the way this world plays, and there's the way I play. He said, look, you know here on earth, he said, he said the, the, the set of rules that you're paying attention to is the leaders who do what they do here. They dominate. They push down. They use their ability to, to get ahead, and that works here. But he's saying, you didn't come to me asking me about how to get ahead here. You came to me asking me about how to get ahead in the kingdom. If you want to know about how to get ahead in the kingdom, this is how you do it. He said, you're in, a cons- you're in an economy of consumers. Anybody can relate to that? We are in an economy of people that consume and consume and consume and consume. And he says, that's not my economy. My economy is an economy of service. Service. You read these texts over and over. Jesus says, what do you do to get ahead? What do you do to get ahead? You serve. You serve. So Jesus is saying, look, you can play by this world's rules if you want to get ahead in the world. But if you want to get ahead in the kingdom, this is how you do it. What is a server look like? I I just want to give you a few things. And there's the biggest picture of what a server really is, is in the Gospels when you read what Jesus did. And that is exactly what Jesus said in this text, by the way, right? He said, even the Son of Man came, came not to be served, but to serve. He said, look, I set the example. Look at what I did. I set the example. But if you want just a few snippets, a little picture of what being a servant is, first of all, they strip themselves of rank. They strip themselves of rank. Every single person in this room has an idea of what they have earned in life and what they deserve in life. And you may not be military and walking around with patches on your shoulder, but all of us do that at some level. We say, this is what I've earned, this is my rank, and you walk into a room and you walk into a situation under the understanding that this is the rank in which you enter this program. When they asked Jesus who could be first, what is one of the first things he said I have no right to give that to you. Does anybody else find that strange? I'm thinking, man, this is Jesus. He can do anything he wants to. And he says, I have no right. Why? Because Jesus said, look, part of the program of me coming to this world was stripping my rank off. I had to lose my rank to come down here to do what only I could do to save you. And that's really important because as a Christ follower, if you want to follow Christ and you want to be truly humble, you can't do it with the rank that you're carrying. We're going to look over in Philippians 2 and in uh, verse 6, starting off. It says, though he was God, this is speaking of Jesus, though he was God, he did not think of equality uh, with God as something to cling to because he wasn't insecure. God didn't come here insecure and didn't try to, and being equal with God wasn't a matter of security for him. Being equal with God was a matter of service. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the stripes off and threw them in the bushes and said, I don't have a rank anymore. I'm here to serve. And being, uh, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. A real servant strips himself of rank. 
Secondly, a real servant, you'll always know a real servant because they have high peer esteem. What we've been studying in Philippians 2, we've been looking at our memory verse. This world wants you to worry about how you feel about yourself. And I'm not going to go all, all over this again because Lance treated it last week. I was just, it, it was awesome. It's not important your picture of yourself. It's important you have a picture of how Jesus sees you. Because Jesus sees you better than you could ever evaluate yourself. You get your picture of you from Jesus. But when Jesus said, let each person value others higher than, them, than themselves, he said, look, here's what I want you to worry about. I want you to worry about how you see other people. I want you to worry about this right here. Let me define this. Let me define the God-you relationship. Let you work at developing the outward relationship with others. Value other people higher than yourself. Value other people higher than yourself. And I want to give you a quick contrast. Third thing is this. When we talk about somebody who's an opportunist versus a servant, an opportunist sees what looks good now. An opportunist sees what looks good now. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, you don't even know what you're asking for. He said, you you don't understand what's on the flip side of what you're asking. He said, there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay. Some of us would love to be celebrities today, but we probably wouldn't want to be if we knew what the price would be to be the celebrity that you, you want to emulate. Some of us would love to be the president of the United States today, but you might not want to be the president of the United States if you knew what was on the flip side of that. And Jesus is saying, you don't even know what you're asking for. An opportunist wants what looks good now. A servant wants what will be good in the future. A servant wants what will be good in the future. Look at Philippians 3.12 with me. This is Paul talking. And remember, Paul ought to be able to really just nail this one home for us because Paul has gone through a life of understanding what's on the flip side. Paul is serving Christ in places you would never want to be. He's been in dark, dark, dank prisons. He's been in with the snakes and the rats. He's been living a rough life to be able to minister to God's people. He understands the flip side. And this is what we find him saying. Philippians 3.12, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize which God, through Christ, is calling us. Focus on the future. Why is New Spring New Spring? Why do you have worship one, serve one? Why do you hand out donuts on uh, 21st Street Northwest Expressway? Why do you have a yellow submarine in Baby Bay? Because we're future-focused. We're future-focused. Why is it that church is not for the churchy people? What we have here is for the world outside these doors and for Wichita outside these doors. Why do we do that? Why is the, why is the, the city of Wichita picking up things about New Spring? Why is the name starting to ring in people's ears? I walked around uh, since I've been here for the last few days, and people are learning about New Spring. What's different about New Spring? New Spring is focused on the future. And I'm excited for you guys that you're focused on the future. You remember the line? How do you know which line you step over? How how do you know whether you're on the humble side? God gives grace to the humble. How do you know if you're on the not humble side? God stiff arms the proud. Let me tell you, this is what it is. When God said, 
if you want to be great, you have to be a servant. He used the term that would have in that period of time meant a waiter or a waitress. Somebody who'd bring you food. Now, I like to eat at Olive Garden because I'm a huge salad addict and they do, you know, endless soup, salad, and breadsticks. Man, it's a home run. I'm there, right? Whenever I go to Olive Garden, what's the first thing that happens? In your, in your favorite restaurant, what's the first thing that happens? Well, somebody comes out and they say what? Hi, I'm Mike. I'm going to be your server today. That's the first thing they say. Why? Because as soon as that happens, there's a relational dynamic that is set. They're saying, look, you're going to be the person who's served, and I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you. So what about the line? Here's the, here's the secret of true humility from what Jesus taught us. True humility is not about whether your friends say you're on this side of the line or whether you think you're on this side of the line. True humility is about taking the step across the line. But before you take the step, let me tell you what this line is. This line is sacrifice. That line is sacrifice. That's what divides humility. When Jesus came to this earth, he understood the price was the sacrifice. Every person in this room He died for you. That was his sacrifice. That was the price he paid. So, when you walk up to this line, understanding that the line means sacrifice, true humility is when you step across the line and you say, Hi, I'm Jonathan. I'm here to be your server today. Some guys in this room need to walk up to their wife, understanding that the line means putting down the remote control every once in a while, right? I'm stepping on my toes, guys. This is for me too. They need to, this means putting down the remote control. This means putting some dishes in the dishwasher sometimes. This means caring enough to listen actively. Some of them need to step across the line and say, hi, I'm here to be your server today. But I'm going to make it really difficult here It's not just about doing that for your husband. It's not just about doing that for your wife. It's not just about doing that for the people that you work with. But it is. This is the hardest part for me. You know those corner cutters we talked about? You know the line cutters? You know the people that have used you to get where they wanted to go? A lot of times in life it's about walking up to that person who cut corners, who broke the line, walking across that line and say, I'm here to be your server today. Because that's what Jesus did for us. We weren't perfect. And we had broken the system. We had, we, had broke the, we had cut the line. And Jesus said, I understand this is the biggest sacrifice anybody has ever made. But I'm still going to walk across the line. And I'm going to come to Jonathan Hoover. And I'm going to say, I'm going to be your server today. And that's how you know which side of the line. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes with me? Some of of you in this room are ready this morning to make a commitment to Jesus Christ to say, I'm going to decide today that I'm going to be a server and not a consumer. I would challenge you today in your heart, decide, I don't want to be the person who sucks up resources anymore. I want to be the person who gives Outward. I want to be the person who sacrifices. I want to be the person who serves. 
It's possible in a room this size that there's somebody here this, this evening and you've never really truly come to understand the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you. Because of that sacrifice, that is why we are here. That is why we celebrate together this evening. Jesus came and he died for you because you're unable to save yourself and that was the only way. He loves you and he is, he is here to rescue you and he has come here to step across the line and serve you. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you would say, Jonathan, I, I just, I don't know Jesus Christ this morning, but I want to know Jesus Christ. I really am thankful that he's served me and I want to know him. I'm going to pray a prayer. You can follow along with me in your heart. There's nothing magical about the words, nothing special. It's, it's the heart and what, what you intend in your heart. You speak to Jesus and say, Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died to save me. I know that I'm a sinner, and I understand that it's impossible for me to save myself. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Take over my life and forgive me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Now look this way. As Lance gets ready to come up, let me just tell you, if you accepted Christ this morning, you are in a group of people who are a pep rally for you. There is nobody in all of Wichita who cares more about your heart and cares more about your relationship with Jesus Christ than this group of people right here. They love you, they care for you, and they're excited to be your new family in Jesus Christ. And if you did accept Jesus Christ this morning, please uh, take the opportunity to stop by the Welcome uh, Center, the New Spring store, and you don't have to give them a whole bunch of information. Just say, I, I prayed to receive Christ tonight. And they'll give you this. Great resources, something that you can, you can watch and you can learn about being a new family member in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest decision you can ever, ever make. Don't leave tonight without making that decision to accept Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, Lance.